Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. This is a prepaid collect call from an incarcerated individual at County Detention Center. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. Guess what time it is? It's time for crime! In this episode, we'll be discussing the continuation of Timothy Ring's case. We hope to answer the following questions. What celebrity would you stalk if you had access? Who do you think should sentence people to death? And would you write an inmate? So listen in and find out more. But for now, try not to end up on an episode unless you're a guest. Hey guys, this is your host, Vanny. And this is Kat. Welcome, new friends, and welcome back, our little stalkers. We hope to capture more of you today with our new episode. So today we're going to be continuing um, last week's case, but before we get going on that, how was your week, Kat? Oh, it was good. It was good. Boss had the baby, so. That's great. Yep, he's out getting exhausted taking care of the baby, so. I'm still chugging along, guys. (laughs) (laughs) It's coming soon, though. We're going to... Baby's coming. Yes. Oh, no. Get the hot water. Get the towels. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's crazy. Well, um, we're going to jump right in because we do have a lot to cover for our final episode on this case. And so before we get going, Kat, if you can remind everybody of last week's question of the week. Yeah, our question for last week was, what jolly nurse killed 31 people around the turn of the 20th century? And that was Jane Topan, trained at Cambridge Hospital but left short of a diploma when two of her patients died mysteriously. This didn't stop her from working as a nurse as she forged a certificate and got work privately. She was apparently quite friendly, earning her the nickname Jolly Jane. Oh, God. Some of these cases, uh, some of these, I mean, apparently this happens a lot. Can you explain, Kat, to our listeners why nurses are killers? Just please tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Confess, please. Oh, (laughs) God, because they're nuts. I, you know, I don't know why they're, why they're killers. And I, (laughs) you know, some people just want to be nurses so bad that when they don't pass the state board, they forge their license. And that used to be actually a really huge problem until they went to the computer testing. Because now you sit. You know, you make an appointment, you go in, you take your test online with the computer, and then you get, you either pass or fail. And if you pass, you get your license right then, you're good to go. It used to be back in the day, while you were waiting to test, they gave you a temporary license that let you work while you were waiting like the three or four months to test because the state board used to be given the same day all across the country. Now you can schedule and it's a computer and it's all different questions and different random stuff. But it used to be you would have that temporary and the the temporary was good. I think it was for six months. And so a lot of nurses had that and then they wouldn't pass their board and they would carry that temporary and they would forge. But I'm not sure why certain nurses kill. I don't know if the patient hit the call light too many times or what. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say. That is the last time you asked me for ice water. (laughs) But it's usually always about like. They get so experimental with drugs that they just like the 
I want to say this is, you know, this is what I've seen at least from some of the cases that I reviewed that nurses were the people committing these crimes was that they like seeing people die. Like they like that experience of having that power and also seeing the scientific, like what is happening to the body. It's very bizarre. There's that. There's also the thrill. There's a lot of ICU nurses that mm-hmm. would cause codes to go in and, oh, there's a code blue. Look, I've saved this person. Look at me. And then there's the group that feel like, oh, we're just compassionate. We're just putting these people out of their misery. We're saving them. We're going to release their souls. We don't want them to suffer anymore. So there's like a couple of different mindsets mm-hmm. for for why nurses kill. It's very interesting. Probably because they can't get the doctor, so they pick on the poor patient. They can't fight back. And then you have the nurses that are like, go above and beyond for patients, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's just, I don't know, ex- extremes. But I think some of these borderline people, I don't know. They just they just get some some weird ideas. I always admired our nurse Donna at Perryville because she never saw anybody as an inmate. She always looked at everybody as a patient and took everybody's oh yeah concerns very serious. Like she did not look at anybody any different no matter what no you're, you're like you're doing work uh what your yeah. your crime was there for right donna loves people and she she just wants to save the world on a continual basis and she's had some some awesome jobs you know cancer treatment center she's worked at uh, circle the city for the homeless uh she she just is somebody that can't do enough and she just wants to save everybody that and all the dogs oh yeah She's like, I will always remember her be f- for that, that kindness that she had for everybody at the, at, at Perryville. Oh yeah. She, she was such an amazing nurse to work with. Absolutely. Well, Ms. Cap, you want to give us a quick reminder of what the, our case is and we'll jump right in. Yeah, so this case uh, is 1994, an armored van driver was murdered. The vehicle and its cargo of nearly a million dollars went missing. Authorities were led to a bounty hunter, a former prison guard, and a former cop. Yeah, so we're talking about the continuation of Timothy Ring and this Arizona armored van driver situation and <laughs> and church parking lots. <laughs> it's just a new case. Yeah, robbery and murder involving yet another armored car. Just makes me wonder what goes on in this town and this state. I, you, know, you people need to stop moving here. We we have killers here. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's crazy. So today's episode, we're going to go a little bit about, I'm going to give a recap of, you know, of the trial. This is what the jury, this is the story of what the jury heard. So I'm going to go into that. And then this went into the Supreme Court. So Kat's going to really dive into the ring versus Arizona. And then we'll end with some latest updates and some conspiracies and facts about the case. So I'll jump right in. So this is the version of events that the jury believed happened. So the shooting took place around 1.30 p.m. on Monday after Thanksgiving in 1994 at the Arrowhead Mall in Glendale. An armored van owner by Wells Fargo stopped behind Dillard's and one of its two occupants went inside. The driver, John Maddock, stayed in the van. He was a smoker, and when he lit up, he opened up his doors about eight inches to get a better ventilation. The windows in an armored car don't roll up, or don't roll down. That provided an opening for ex-correctionals officer Timothy Ring, an expert marksman who was lurking in the parking lot with a rifle. He shot him in the head from 40 yards away. 
Another conspirator named James Greenham, who shoved Maddock into the passenger side, got behind the wheel and drove off. Ring and our man from the falls followed in their own vehicles. Afterward, Ring and, uh, what's his name? Ferguson. Greenham? Ferguson. Ferguson, yeah. Ferguson. They followed him in their own vehicles. Afterwards, they rendezvoused into a church parking lot in Sun City, where they loaded about $563,000 in bills into Ring's truck, a small red Toyota pickup, and $271,000 in checks, which they later burned, and they left behind $132,000 in coins along with the dead body. So this is kind of the story of events and a recap of, of what the jury heard at the time of the sentencing. For Timothy, he was sentenced a life sentence, and he currently remains in prison. James Harold Grinham was sentenced to 27 years, and William Ferguson was given 16 years in prison and was released in May of 2013. He had pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and armed robbery and spent 16 years in prison in Colorado, Texas, and Ohio before he was being released. So what kind of makes this case a little more interesting was uh, Ring had a trial. Uh, He was tried separately. And the jury found him guilty of capital murder. And it was a judge that uh, went ahead and sentenced him. So the jury found him guilty. He came back for sentencing. There was no jury present. Uh, Greenham actually fingered Ring as the shooter. The jury really didn't know who who shot him. But Greenham figured, fingered Ring as the shooter. And then was talking that Ring wanted to be congratulated on his shot the next day. The jury didn't hear any of that. But the judge, when it came time to sentence, took into the fact that there was there was two things that helped him with his decision. One was the there was a murder and it was committed for money. And the second was it was an especially heinous, cruel, or depraved manner, you know, by shooting him that far. So uh, the judge went ahead and sentenced him to death. And that was how things rolled in Arizona at the time, that, you know, a judge would do the sentencing, the jury would do the convicting, and the judge would would do the sentencing. And there was a a case um, that happened in Arizona that was Walton v. Arizona. And with that one, they're sentenced in a separate sentencing hearing before a judge as required by state law. And under that, under the law, the judge shall impose a death sentence if he finds one or more aggravating circumstances. So because of Walton v. Arizona, Arizona now, and it's not only Arizona, there's like nine other states, not that they have Walton, but there's nine other states that allow a judge to sentence instead of a jury. But that was Arizona law at the time. So the judge came in, he found the two factors that it was committed for money and it was, you know, depraved and cruel. And so he did the death penalty. With the death penalty comes the automatic appeal. So it went through you know, the appellate court, they upheld it and it went, he took it to the Arizona Supreme Court and by law, when it says right there, as required by state law, under the law, the judge shall impose a death sentence. The Arizona Supreme Court upheld the ruling because that was the law for Arizona at the time. So this is the part that just makes me crazy when you have people that can't afford to go to college and universities and get an education, but Inmate after inmate gets to sit and have access to absolutely everything and are, you know, have the ability to get a law degree, which that could be another case as we have somebody that did that. But getting back to this one, so he has time to look up all this crap 
you know, and try to find a loophole and see what he can do. So he goes ahead and he petitions the United States Supreme Court and they agree to hear his case. So they looked at two main cases, Jones versus the U.S. in 1999, but they really looked at one called Apprendi v. New Jersey in 2000. So he committed his crime in 94. He was sentenced. The appellate process is ticking along and it's climbing. Meantime, you know, time is going by. So we're getting up to the year 2000. So Apprendi v. New Jersey was just decided because Walton v. Arizona was 1990, but Apprendi v. New, v. New Jersey uh, was a case the Supreme Court decided in 2000. And the thing with Apprendi v. New Jersey is that one prohibits judges from enhancing criminal sentences beyond statutory maximum based on facts other than those decided by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. So in the first one, if the judge found that there were causes, he could increase the statutory minimum. So like if the law, you know, said, okay, life in prison, but he said, because it was done for money and it was cruel and unusual and heinous, ergo, I am able to add on to that and make it the death penalty. But when they ruled in 2000, Apprendi v. New Jersey, they were like, no, you can't really do that. You can't stack. If, if there's things that are heinous and cruel and you want to raise the sentencing guidelines and standards, then you need to bring a jury in and have the jury unanimously say, yes, we find that, you know, this was beyond whatever and we think it should be X. So now the Supreme Court was looking at Apprendi and they're looking at Apprendi versus Watson and kind of what um, Arizona did. I find it interesting that because this case was so long ago, who was on the Supreme Court at that time? Because a lot of them are no longer with us. So Arizona's own Sandra Day O'Connor was on that, Judge Scalia and Ruth Ginsburg mm -hmm. uh, sat on this and they were deciding this case. And I thought it was, you know, really kind of incredible, you know, who was on this at the time. So after much debate and whatever that they did, Ginsburg and Scalia were kind of leading the pact and they were going to uphold Apprendi and have that overrule the Watson v. Arizona. Sandra Day O'Connor was the dissenting side of that. And her big concern was that if they overruled the Walton v. Arizona, that was going to affect not only nine states, but there was like 168 inmates that were on death row in Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, and Nebraska. And O'Connor's fear was if they ruled in favor of Apprendi, that all 168 of these inmates were going to want new remedies and mm -hmm. new trials and petition the court and that the court was just going to be completely overwhelmed. And she really thought that the difference between Apprendi and Watson was just hair splitting. But the judge voted seven or the justices voted seven to two to go after Apprendi. So that meant for Arizona, everybody in the state of Arizona that a judge had sentenced to death was immediately commuted to life. Now, for people that remember um, the case that we did on Deborah Milkey, mm -hmm. I was like, yay, because now that knocked her off death, death row. row. 
she was still in prison and they still hadn't, you know, decided her case and, and she hadn't gotten out yet, but it put her to only life imprisonment, got her off death row. On the other hand, and this is another case that we could look at um, down the road, was we had an inmate at Lumley and that yard used to be named San Juan, but Officer Lumley was working an overtime shift and this inmate, Cropper, was able to get out of his cell at count. He was able to get into the tower and he took a screwdriver and killed Officer Lumley. And he was tried and he was put on death row and et cetera. So when this ring decision came down, Cropper's conviction automatically got commuted to life in prison. Mm -hmm. So that didn't set well with a lot of people. So in Mr. Cropper's case, they immediately did a retrial. They convened a jury and the jury convicted him to death in 20 minutes. But they can't afford to do that for everybody. And I think they went after Cropper because he killed, you know, a member of law enforcement. They came at him. They didn't bother to go after Milky. But then if you go back to Milky's case, there were other things that happened with her case that, you know, propelled her case forward. But this just really changed the way nine different states do business. Mm -hmm. And so it was... It was really, I mean, this was like earth shattering. This was like the game you know, changer. The, yeah, it was like inventing the atomic bomb. Oh my goodness. All these people now are automatically, you know, switched over to life. And a lot of them, they left. Ring was one of them because they just felt that it wasn't worth, mm -hmm. you know, the the try, you know, the time and the expense to retry him. It was like whatever. And um, I had caught a little bit of uh, an article called the magic quill that was that was done by John McCaw's uh, daughter and she just talks a little blip about what happened with this case and the fact that she was consulted you know by the state of Arizona the prosecutors and she was asked what was important to her and what she would like to see happen and i found it very interesting that she felt like when these death penalty cases and stuff come up, it's it's always the same rhetoric, the, the same things are thrown out, and then it drags the, the victim's families all through the mud again. They'd have to sit through a whole other trial, go through all this stuff again, and she just felt it was better to just leave him life in prison, never get out, and just go on with life. And so they, they did not waste the time to retry him. And I don't really think there was very many people that they bothered to retry. Cropper was one because of what he did. But other than that, I think everybody else, they just, you know, left him on life in prison. Yeah. So pretty interesting how that was a turn of events because, you know, I, I went through the whole like Ring versus Arizona and I was like, okay, I'm reading all this stuff. I'm sure our listeners probably are like, what does this all mean? Right. And basically <laughs> it just comes down that, you know, he was giving the death penalty. So he was on death row. He appealed it. And the U.S. Supreme decided to look at his case. And what happened was that his case changed the way they did the death penalty. So the justice ruled that the jury, rather than the judge, had to cite the circ aggravating circumstances requiring for a judge to impose the death penalty. So it requires the jury versus just a judge to do it. Right. And so because of this, you look at a case like Jody Arias, that changed things because the judge didn't send us Jody because of the ring decision. Mm -hmm. they, the jury sentenced her. So yeah, that, that was a game changer. Absolutely. Huge game changer. But it's very fascinating that, you know, Justice Ginsburg, O'Connor, Justice Breyer was, were involved in this case. Like that's some pretty huge people that 
people are more now aware of these justice leaders, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially since uh, two of them have passed. Absolutely. And uh, I think, is it Ferguson that is on the Supreme Court? But anyway, he's the one that's getting ready to retire. So this this justice, because they're, they're looking for someone now to uh, fill the Supreme Court. And last I left off, there was like 24 nominees. But he was on this on this panel, and so they're getting ready. He's getting ready to retire. It's crazy to think about. I just feel like the year 2000 wasn't too long ago, but it was forever and a day. <laughs> it was, and it's just, I can't help but feel with this whole, you know, 2020 and 2021, just like warped time. It just, mm-hmm. those two years just has made everything so surreal. Absolutely. And I... Still struggle to put 2022, and here we are in February-ish, March, right? So I still struggle. I think it takes you about four months before you actually start putting the right date. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's very fascinating that it, it went to the Supreme Court and that they actually wanted to listen to us. But, you know, that leads to the next question. He's like, okay, what's the latest update on these people? And, you know, I have to share my conspiracy stuff that I found because of course every case has some weird conspiracy or it makes me question or I create a conspiracy out of these cases you know so I'll start with uh Timothy or Tim as you like to say so I found you know he was given life sentence of course and he still remains in prison he's at Lewis at the Buckley unit um but I found his pen pal god um write a prisoner <laughs> uh profile oh <laughs> So that that was interesting. One of the things that I've that you know he writes in his profile was that he's primarily interested in contacts from advocates and activists, podcasters and bloggers who have um exposed the injustice of his case to the world. So he may like that, he may love that I'm sharing conspiracies and injustice to his case. So <laughs> some of his personal interests are music, movies, exposing and fighting America's injustice system. His previous interests were all like outside, which we've already t- discussed. Like he likes motorcycles, scuba diving, hiking. You know, he bought all these things with this stolen money that we talked about <laughs> in the case. He actually was in, I don't know, what IPSC competitions, but he also performed and is still classified foreign intelligence operations for the United States of America. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> we're getting desperate, people. Yeah, his... Uh, <laughs> His hometown is in uh, New York. He is divorced. He is, in case you guys are curious. And one of the things that I found interesting was that he served the military. He was in the Air Force from 1982 to 1985. Yeah, I mean, he had all these good jobs, like, Mm -hmm. on the right side, and he just turned. And I love how he's, like, injustice. I mean, he took out a guy at 40 yards with a high-powered rifle. How is that injustice? Yeah. So a little bit into, like... Some of the things I questioned and a little bit of the conspiracy stuff that I had I found were there was no sketches during at the time of like when they were looking for him that looked like Timothy Ring. The other sketches did look like the guys, the other two guys, but the one sketch did not look like anything like Timothy Ring. But I think that has to do with that he was the shooter. Nobody really saw him, but they did see the two guys that drove away in the vehicle. So it was easier to do those composites than the shooter. Oh, yeah, because he was like hunkered down. He was in a sniper position. So who who was going to see him? And then second was the no fingerprints of him at the crime scene, which we know that these three guys were in law enforcement. So they probably wiped down the armored car, the armored van before leaving the scene. Yeah. 
And gloves. Absolutely. And then for James, I didn't find anything. I just know that he, sent, he was sentenced for 27 years. We couldn't find what prison he's at or where he's at, but I do know that he's not in Arizona because I searched the DOC um, inmate lookup and he's not in Arizona. So who knows where he's at. Yeah, they could have done a prisoner exchange with him. Mm-hmm. And then for William uh, Ferguson, he was given 16 years in prison and was released in May of 2013. He pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and armed robbery. And then he spent the 16 years in Colorado, Texas, and Ohio. Uh, and then the question was like, okay, why would he plead guilty if he wasn't guilty, right? Especially like he was a police officer. One of the things he that he strongly believed was if you're not guilty and you're an innocent man, why would you take a plea, right? So his response was, when you're looking at the death penalty and your lawyers are telling you this is the best deal we're going to get you to save your life and your parents are sitting there crying, you take the deal, take the deal, what would you do? He's like, and you know that you weren't there. You didn't have anything to do with the situation. I swear I'm the innocent man and I always would say I would never sign a plea deal, but here it is. I signed a plea deal and it happened to me. The other thing was that, you know, there was a version to him that, you know, he was never around. He was, they believed it was him because of, uh, he knew Ring and he knew the other guy um, because of the gun store that implicated him. But, you know, he's now, what, what I found the most interesting thing about his current status of where he's living at in his life now is that the law allowed him to keep his police pension. Uh, right? So he's, he gets fired because he's misusing the computers because he's stalking celebrities, but he gets to keep his pension. Yes, he got to keep his pension. Um, both of his parents died within two months of each other before he was released, and apparently they were upper middle class. And he owns an acre and a quarter of property in a remote area in northern Arizona. So he still resides in Arizona. Yeah, he lives quiet. But yeah, I, I found that so interesting that, you know, well, I took the plea deal because it was the best deal I was going to get. And mm-hmm. they have no evidence of me. And I'm like, they've got the wiretaps. <laughs> they have you guys talking about it. Yes. So if you, you know, I'm thinking if I, you know, shopped at a certain store, gun store, shoe store, whatever, and it was frequented by some other shoppers and they went out and committed a crime. You know, what does that have to do with the fact that, oh, I, I know them because I was, you know, I shop at that store. You're not going to have wiretap of me, you know, talking about elements of a crime with these people. I, whatever they do is just coincidence that we shop at the store. So I, I thought that whole, his whole angle on that was just really cheesy. Yeah. Oh, we only know each other because we're at the same gun store. Yeah, but they have wiretap of you talking about you know, can you believe they're talking about a suppressor? Ha 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 ha. Yeah. I, you know, you, you don't have wiretap on me. That's all I'm saying. So I have two stories that are kind of like conspiracies. <laughs> one is. No. <laughs> <laughs> one was actually from the Phoenix New York, uh, New Times. It was a story that they released back in 1997. And they accused the Glendale police of protecting a murderer. So during the trials guy that wrote this article was Terry Green Sterling. It became clear that the Glinda police ignored red flags while investigating the crime. We don't know if they were pressured to solve the notorious crime too quickly, or if they were merely stupid, or if Sanders had something something on one of them. The report said Sanders lied about his alibi, and that police hid a videotape of a witness who reported seeing Sanders speed away from the mall. I don't know how true this is and who this Sanders guy is, but 
that was a very interesting story. Yeah, and, and I I live in Glendale, and I I don't believe any of that. This guy was like an informant. He'd he'd tell you anything for a buck, and. I, you know, I've lived here for a really, really, really long time. And I also had the privilege uh, several years ago to uh, go through, they had a citizen's police academy and I got to go through that and find out exactly how awesome Glendale police department is. So I don't believe any of that for a minute. They are a fantastic group of people. So then the second story was from the Arizona Republic. They read a story that headlined new questions in the 94 armored car murder in Glendale. And this is the two things that they pointed out. New evidence, or rather evidence that had been downplayed. There are questions about a missing bullet, a cigarette butt that was never found, and a pile of cash found in Ring's home. The findings may or may not mean Ring is not guilty, but they strongly suggest that the crime didn't happen the way prosecutors said it did. Well, um, they didn't find the bullet because I'm pretty sure as a marksman... You know, now I don't, I I didn't look at autopsy photos to know what happened to the bullet Mm -hmm. that went into his head. So did it just go into the armored car and get lost? Or are they, I mean, are they talking about like the bullet, the projectile that went in the guy's head? Or are they talking about the casing? Because I'm pretty sure that Ring would have been smart enough to pick up the casing and hot foot it out. Could it be that the bullet uh, got so much damage that they weren't going to be able to do anything with it? They already didn't have the casing and I, cause they already couldn't introduce the, the gun, the rifle at trial. So they didn't have any ballistic evidence on that. They did, however, find the gun when they did the search warrant and then, you know, pieced it backwards from, from there. And I guess the biggest thing that these three men both hold is that the case is extremely complex um, and the details that there was no in, without any forensic evidence linking the men to the murder, the entire case was just circumstantial. However, circumstantial evidence is enough to convict people. And in this case, the circumstances were so powerful. I'm, I'm assuming it's the wiretaps that had a lot to do with it that played into the favor of the prosecution. Oh, yeah. You, you would be amazed how many cases are solved circumstantially. Mm-hmm. And to anybody that, that wants to see how a circumstantial case is put together, watch Cold Justice. It's on oxygen. I, Kelly Siegler, she is a prosecutor from Texas. I, the woman is amazing. I have seen every episode and many of them multiple times. But she puts together a circumstantial case and it's phenomenal. And when you look at, you take this tiny circumstance and this and this and this, and all of a sudden you've got 35 of them, you start to go, hmm, you know, maybe I didn't have somebody that could point and go, it was him. But you look at all this other stuff and you're like, who else would it be? Yeah. You know, there's, so there are many, many cases that get solved circumstantially. Well, that's kind of the ending wrap of my conspiracies and like updates on these cases. (laughs) But, you know, I love to tap dabble into some of these things. I think it's fun. It makes you think a little different. And we have listeners that, you know, may have different perspectives. And I try to tap into that for you guys. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I don't think that just because a case gets investigated and goes to trial, that it's a hundred percent in a hundred percent on the prosecutor side. That's, it's not always this one, I think was a little more, it was complicated. Sure. But I think this one was a little more cut and dry, especially with the wiretap portion of it. I just, I just wanted, I I still circle back on the spending spree that they went on. I just, 
think it's funny. I think it's crazy. I, I just ask our listeners, like, what would you do with that much money? And would you take Kat's advice and go put it in a safe deposit box and wait 10 years and spend it? Or would you do what our guys did and go buy all kinds of fun toys? And go bananas. <laughs> Which, you know, you go bananas and it's going to get seized by the FBI or the IRS. Somebody's going to end up taking it because they'll find out that you stole that money. What is that um, that case where people go out to the mountain at Superstitions Mountain? The, the Dutchman's gold? Oh, yeah. The Lost Dutchman yeah. Mine. Still looking for Still that looking gold mine. Still looking for that gold mine. Yeah, that's a very interesting case. I'm like, huh, I think I need to go searching for some gold. <laughs> yep. Always a couple people a year stuck up on the mountain trying to find it. You know, they've had people die of exposure out yeah. there looking for it. But there are still many, many, many people that are still actively looking for that mine. I still think that it's not there. Like, I think it's like a, it, it's probably in a different place or a different mountain. There's people that come from all over the U.S. and even across the you know world that try looking for that gold. Yeah, exactly. That they just really believe it's there. I'm thinking, all these people looking all this time, I'm thinking we would have found it already, but... Hey, so first of all, people are going to have to convince me to go hiking. That's the first, like, <laughs> obstacle you're going to have to face with me to go. <laughs> well, first rule, Vanny's not going hiking until after this baby. So that's the first thing. Exactly. So, well, I had a great time talking about this case and sharing insights and discussing this case. And I look forward to our next case and jumping in. But before we do, let's have our question of the week and we'll close out our our case okay sounds like a good one i tell you i don't know what it is about arizona not only do we have the most dramatic cases but we have all this groundbreaking supreme court Mm -hmm. you know change the whole legal system that goes on in here all right well the question of the week for this week is who was the youngest woman ever sentenced to death in the u.s it's a good question right I find that question very interesting because I was like, well, how far back does it go, right? Because the first thing I thought of was like the Salem witch trials. That's the first place my head went. So Yeah, I'm thinking uh, since they were keeping records. Sounds very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so it's the whole U.S., so maybe somebody has beat Arizona. No, no, no. We'll find out soon, guys. I don't know. It'd be nice if somebody beat us. <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and we hope we captured some of you guys. And, you know, follow us on our social media, our website, and, you know, share our podcast with all the listeners or any of your friends and family that may like true crime. We'd love to have them be a part of our little stalking family. Really? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We thank you so much for you guys for listening. We we really appreciate it. So please go to, go to the Facebook page and uh, look for the trivia question and... Please feel free to answer it. Yes. And then next week's episode, we'll be talking about Brian Efnoff's case. This is another one near and dear to Miss Kat that she can't wait to discuss with you guys. Yeah. And this one has a little more room for, hmm. More of my conspiracies. (laughs) Well, more conspiracies and it's not as cut and dry, I don't think. So it'll be a good one. Absolutely, guys. Well, you guys take care, be safe and be kind out there. Yep. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you guys always. So thanks for listening. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.
Time for Crime is a podcast about true crime, prison life, and the opinions from the people who've worked on the inside. Please follow us and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcatching software. Help us get our voice out there. You can get more information about the podcast and this case at www.timeforcrime.net. Look for us on Twitter at Time for Crime One or on Facebook at Time for Crime Vanny Cat. Feel free to leave us a comment on our voicemail at 623-292-5871. We might even put your call on the podcast. Like it, love it, and share it, but please credit the hosts Vanessa Nunez and Kathy Delaney for their commitment to the podcast and service to the community. We'd like to send a special thanks to Nickel Nynth for the music in this podcast. We'd also like to thank Dave Kaiser and Peter Nynth for their support of the podcast and website. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you, the listener. Without you, we couldn't bring you this podcast. Take care, everyone.